is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 11, Citizen Game, Part 1. Well, folks, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Up until now, I've been able to consolidate our Game Changer episodes into two-part chunks. I really wanted to avoid having long podcasts. Half an hour of me yapping away is about as much as anyone should have to endure. But episode 11 has resisted being squeezed into this format, perhaps appropriately given the game's ambition, size, and scope. You see, it arises from the intersection of two trends in the tabletop world. One is less than a decade old, and one goes back to the 1970s. So, like Gaius Julius Caesar, I'm going to split my territory into three parts this time around, and I hope you'll bear with me. In part one, I'll discuss the first trend. In part two, trend number two, and then I'll bring it all together for part three. Wainy, Weedy, Lucy. I came, I saw, I played. By the middle of the 2010s, tabletop was more popular than ever. Wizards of the Coast was still introducing new sets for Magic the Gathering every year, and their fanbase kept buying. Gateway Euro games like Catan and Ticket to Ride were still selling in the thousands every year and being played in living rooms and board game cafes around the world, along with tightly designed microgames like Love Letter and a new generation of party games like Cards Against Humanity and its many imitators. During this period, we saw the proliferation of new technology and digital platforms that made it easier than ever for fans to connect, as well as making it easier to finance, produce, and market games, and their components. YouTube was almost a decade old, and crowdfunding had already arrived in the form of Kickstarter and Indiegogo around 2010. But now 3D printing and the continual improvement in bandwidth and download speeds also played their part. The result was that changes began to ripple through the tabletop community and marketplace, subtly at first, but more and more pronounced as time went on. As the audience for tabletop grew and intensified, the commodification of tabletop went into a higher gear. And that's our first trend. First, the production side of commodification. The tabletop industry was in a state of flux, although As we'll see, the invention of Kickstarter dramatically increased the total number of publishers. The mid-2010s saw a new wave of buyouts and mergers among the industry leaders. Many of the first generation of modern publishers, such as Avalon Hill, SPI, TSR, and Mayfair Games, which had started out as kind of fan-driven businesses trying to turn their passion into a profession, had failed, and they'd been absorbed by their more successful competitors. On one end of the spectrum, you had Hasbro Incorporated, which now held the licenses to Monopoly, Risk, and many other classic games. And then you had Asmodee, a French company founded in 1995, which had begun a series of acquisitions which would see it absorb Fantasy Flight, Days of Wonder, and Lookout Games, just to name a few, giving it a huge share of modern tabletops publishing and distribution. And also in terms of distribution, Amazon began to disrupt the tabletop industry as it had many others. This led to the disappearance of many brick-and-mortar game stores, from giants, Toys R Us, to hundreds of friendly local game stores, or FLGSs, who just could not compete with Amazon's inventory, pricing, and delivery. 
Amazon's downward pressure on prices in turn squeezed profit margins for tabletop publishers, which were never high to begin with, which meant even less profit for the remaining retail stores. I think these changes in the tabletop marketplace have tended to make publishers more risk-averse. They want stable revenue streams that they can use to plan long-term. So, as we've seen in the movie and the video game industries, major tabletop publishers have become less willing to take a chance on designers who have yet to establish a name for themselves, or who have games with unusual themes or mechanics. Instead, they increasingly come to rely on proven designers and franchises, and new editions, and collector's editions, and content licensed from popular IP, or intellectual property. These are things that consumers already know, and are thus more likely to buy. Once again, Catan took the lead. In 2005, Cosmos knew some fans would be willing to spend more for fancier components, so they produced a 3D collector's edition with landscaped terrain and hand-painted settlements. Here, we're veering close to the second meaning of commodification, uh, the act or fact of exploiting something for profit. Thankfully for gamers, modern tabletop designers and publishers have raised the bar when it comes to games based on licensed IP. Arguably, the first important example of this was Reiner Knizia's 2001 game Lord of the Rings, which came out just around the time the first movie in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy arrived in theaters. Later on, WizKids put out some surprisingly good games based on the Hunger Games franchise in and around 2010, and Game Salute issued four quite satisfying Princess Bride mini-box games in around 2015, making up for the abominations that they had produced with 2008's Storming the Castle and 2013's Prepare to Die. Even more recently, two publishers, one an elder statesman and one a quite new kid on the block, have cranked up both the frequency and the quality of their IP-licensed games. The Elder Statesman is Ravensburger, founded back in 1883 and still going strong in its traditional spheres of children's toys, puzzles, and games. Recently, it has been buying licenses for beloved movies such as Back to the Future and The Princess Bride, hiring talented designers such as the team known as Prospero Hall, and turning out quality games which give 100% fan service and are good games in their own right. They've also based games on entire genres or series of films, such as Horrified, which is based on the classic universal horror movies, and Villainous, which has players battling each other in the role of bad guys from across the Disney canon, and they've just expanded that idea to the Marvel supervillains. Meanwhile, the relatively new kid on the block was Funko. That's right, the folks behind those big-headed moon-eyed dolls. They bought up a small board game development studio and renamed it Funko Games. Right out of the gate, they introduced a money spinner in the form of the Funkoverse Strategy Game, a relatively simple and streamlined tactical combat game that used miniature Funko figures and which allowed players to create skirmishes using characters from universes as disparate as Rick and Morty, Harry Potter, and Batman, and the Golden Girls? Then in 2020, they released a well-received Back to the Future game designed by Prospero Hall. Those guys really get around. As well as a retro-themed Pan Am game, which 
felt and played like a classic first-generation Euro, even as it celebrated the history of a defunct American airline. So, gamers have benefited, to some extent, from commodification by producers, inasmuch as the quality of licensed games has improved, to some extent, and more games are being produced and released than ever. But although there are still plenty of mid-size and smaller companies such as Renegade, Pandasaurus, Eggerspiele, Stronghold, Later, and Splatter, who start with the designer and work from there instead of working backwards from an IP, a certain amount of standardization and homogenization of products has occurred because bigger companies tend to like to stick with formulas that work. And so innovators must look elsewhere. And where do they go, these new designers and companies looking to break in and establish themselves? Many of them have taken the same route taken by the creators of Cards Against Humanity, which I recounted in episode 9. They start with making their games available for free or pay what you can as downloads. Then they take the Kickstarter plunge. And if things go fabulously well, they set up shop officially and incorporate. Or, in the case of designers, they start working with the big boys. In the last couple of years, some have gone straight to Kickstarter because a good pitch and a sexy video teaser can often be enough to raise thousands, sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So why give your stuff away for free? Kickstarter has brought out some of the best and worst in designers, publishers, and gamers. The projects you find there often fill gaps in the tabletop ecosystem, embodying concepts and ideas and dreams that don't exist but sound amazing, at least at first. Do you want a Monopoly-esque game set in an HP Lovecraft universe? There's the doom that ate Atlantic City. Or how about a tactical role-playing system set in the Robotech universe? Voila! Robotech RPG Tactics. Or a reprint of a beloved game that's long been out of print? A Grail game? Well, hello up front. And games weren't the only things being kickstarted. How about rainbow colored dice with your name on them? Or neoprene mats for miniature warfare? Or sleeves for your cards with artwork by your favorite fantasy artist? Or dice towers? A whole industry of customized components began to grow, both on Kickstarter and through local FLGSs, which perched atop the modern tabletop market. And it's hard to know what came first in this dynamic. Did supply drive demand? Or was it the other way around? Were gamers commodifying the games? On the one hand, folks have been painting toy soldiers for centuries, and American retail games from the 1940s onward, although they were made often from molded plastic, definitely had eye candy appeal, to the point that the term Ameritrash was applied to them at first in a vaguely negative way, but later appreciatively. And meanwhile, the first generation of modern tabletop games had components which tended to follow function over form. Just think of Catan's cardboard tiles and abstract wooden settlement city and road pieces. It was players who began to pimp their games since at least Agricola, as I discussed in episode five. So arguably fan demand came ahead of the supply. 
On the other hand, by 2010, thanks to versions of games like the Catan 3D Special Edition, tabletop fans' appetites for bling had been whetted, and since then, publishers like Simon and Peterson Games have been releasing game after game, whose major selling point is often their eye-popping components. Fans began to expect every Kickstarter to include stretch goals for fancier components, such as spot UV on the box, or minis in place of meeples. The arrow of causation here does go both ways. Now, as of the time of recording, I have backed an unbelievable 79 Kickstarter projects. A couple were for apps and video games, but 95% were board games. Of those, I would say I was happy with at least 80% of them, and only three of them never reached fruition, and I got my money back for one of them. But each and every time I click that pledge button, I remind myself that Kickstarter is not a store, and pledging is not pre-ordering. Nor has Kickstarter ever pretended to be anything else, whatever their other faults. Many first-time backers, however, do get confused, and it's not helped by the fact that some established publishers use Kickstarter as a de facto pre-order system, saving them the trouble of having to set up their own back-end. Simon, Peterson Games, Queen Games, Gamelin Games, Level 99, even French publishers Le Bois de Jeu are only a few who have done it. It's not illegal, and it's not against Kickstarter's rules, but some argue it should be, because, as established companies, they're using system resources and sucking oxygen away from small and independent creators, which is what Kickstarter was supposedly founded for. And, as I said above, it just serves to muddy backers' expectations when it comes to other publishers and other games. I could do a whole season on notorious tabletop Kickstarter fails. Most of them failed because the skills needed to produce a successful Kickstarter page are vastly different than those needed to actually design and or produce the game. Some, like Martin Wallace's Deck Destruction Civil War game Lincoln, had fine production values and arrived on time, but clearly had not been fully playtested or developed or proofread. Others, such as the reprint of the classic Glory to Rome, already had a proven design but fell apart at the graphic design or production stage, arriving months or years late and not even properly fulfilled. And then there were projects like Myth by Megacon Games, which had major issues in both areas, which I backed. And finally, you have notorious projects like the reprint of the classic Avalon Hill game Upfront, which suffered from the teensy-weensy problem of not actually owning the rights to publish the game. Another example is from 2013, when a Spanish publisher crowdfunded a 25th anniversary edition of the beloved tabletop dungeon-delving game HeroQuest. That fell apart when it turned out they had the rights to publish the game in Spain, but not internationally. I couldn't find out whether this was a scam or just a well-intentioned but doomed venture, but it attracted a lot of attention and had consequences I'll be talking about later on. Which brings me to the subject of Kickstarter scams. It's one thing to have a grand or grandiose idea which falls to pieces due to inexperience and or mismanagement. It's another to promise something which you either have no right to or which you never intend to deliver on. I'm not talking about games like Unbroken, whose designer had the misfortune to partner up with Golden Bell Studios. 
These guys tried to cut their shipping costs by sending copies out by media mail, which was set up to send educational materials, which resulted in backers having to pay extra, not to mention copies appearing in stores before backers even got their copies, an all-too-common problem with Kickstarters, unfortunately. I'm talking about projects like Money Buns, a baked goods-themed game which was supposedly invented by Cristina Scamporino, but which was actually identical to Uwe Rosenberg's classic trading game Bonanza in every detail except for the theme. Despite her claims of having spent months playtesting, and plenty of other doubling-down pronouncements, enough people called them out and reported them that they had to cancel their two crowdfunding campaigns, one on KickTrack and one on Kickstarter, in December 2018, though not before attracting almost $10,000 in pledges from unsuspecting backers. Luckily, since the campaigns failed, those people didn't lose their money. Others weren't so lucky. Remember, Kickstarter is not a guaranteed pre-order system. In fact, Kickstarter should literally be called Caveat Emptor. But the scammy kind of commodification isn't just on the publisher side. There's also the gamer side of commodification. Tabletop fans are also guilty of it, though not obviously on the same monetary scale. You have people who pre-order or buy several copies of a hot new game and then just turn around and flip them like they were condos. You have people who are super enthusiastic about a new project, talking it up on social media and rating it 10 on BGG before it's even published, who turn out to be the designer or friends of the designer. And you have people who buy or back a game not because they want it or like it, but because they're afraid they're going to be left behind. Yep. Hashtag FOMO is a real thing in Tabletop 2. I've passed on a couple of Kickstarters despite feeling pretty massive FOMO, and in two cases, I've regretted it. The first was 2016 Scythe from Stonemaier Games. It was all over BGG, and the artwork looked amazing, but I decided to stay strong and pass. Then I got to play it at a friend's place, and I was hooked. It was, in my eyes, the very epitome of good modern Euro design, with tightly interlocking gameplay, individualized factions, multiple paths to victory, and gorgeous components. I had to get a copy. Naturally, it was too late to get a Kickstarter copy, so I had to settle for a retail version. But I did eventually spring for the board extension so I could play with the properly large hexagons, but I didn't buy the souped-up components. My other Kickstarter FOMO regret was this episode's Game Changer, and I paid for my recalcitrance. Oi, did I pay for it! But that story will have to wait until part three. That was part one of episode 11 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time, and don't flip that table. <laughs>